Hello guys, welcome to the Cryptonary Podcast. Today I'm here with our Solana and maybe also NFT researcher Bill. And we're here with uh, NFT artist on Solana, John Lee. Cryptonary's hosts and guests are not registered financial advisors. All opinions are Cryptonary's alone. Nothing discussed in the podcast should be considered as investment advice or should be relied on upon investment decisions. This podcast is purely for information and entertainment purposes only. Now I've said all this, let's go. Welcome, John. Hi, thank you for having me. And uh, Bill, how has uh, your day been to uh, start off? Oh, it's been a lovely day. I've got myself some pizza and I've got a really interesting chat coming up about one of one art in the NFT space with one of the premier artists on Solana in the ecosystem. So really looking forward to this one today, Stan. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, and to uh, start off with uh, you, John, uh, how did you get into NFTs? And maybe also for the people that don't know you, give like a quick explanation of what you do right now. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, I am a professional comic book artist, and that's what I do outside of NFTs. But um, I came on to NFTs around, I believe it was October or maybe even the end of September. But before that, I exactly one year ago today in January, so January 2020 was when I actually got onboarded to understanding what crypto was, as well as um, what Solana was and what you know Solana would do in the future. So I think I heard about NFTs maybe a year before that in 2019, and I believe that's when the the very large Beeple sale happened over on Ethereum. And it, funny enough, that, that kind of didn't click with me at that point. And um, it didn't click with me for a long time. I came into Salon NFT space around September. And, you know, I came in as a collector and investor, and I was just trying to turn my small bag of Solana into a bigger bag. But I was actually quite bad at doing that. So, um, you know, it's funny that I came in and I never really had an intention to put my work on chain. But I think after understanding the mechanics and, and you know, actually collecting NFTs and selling NFTs and holding them, I, I started to understand the mechanics of NFTs a little more. And then it really started to click for me a little more and, and more each day. So I started to mint my stuff on chain. And the, the route that I went with was auctioning one of one art. So, but before we dive into the art, my first question is, you're an artist and yet you've come into the space as an investor and you heard about Solana back in January. How did that happen? What, what was the, was there a person that brought you into it? Was it Twitter? How, how did you get into crypto, you know, to jumpstart this whole thing? Yeah. So two people are largely responsible for that. And uh, my two friends that are also um, in the Monkey Dow, and uh, they had kind of started educating me um, in January and they, you know, they, they got me to set up a trust wallet and they sent me some soul to get started and uh, kind of like, you know, taught me about what Bitcoin did and then what Ethereum did and then what the Gen 3 crypto of Solana and everything else was, was trying to solve. And um, that's what was my first, first introduction into Solana and NFTs, or actually at that point, I don't even think we were talking about NFTs. Yeah. They were just kind of educating me on on blockchain. Yeah, back then we didn't have NFTs on Solana. It was so right. early because I remember the space at the start. The only things we had then were the wallets and Radium, and that was it. And that right. was all you could do. But it, it still worked. And then slowly, I think we had the Star Atlas come through. But 
the NFT space really got going, I think, in around July or so. I think the the Solarians were the first ones. And then we had the the monkeys, as you mentioned, the monkey DAO. So for anyone wondering, the monkey DAO is a DAO made up of around 5,000 people. It should be. There's, there's less because obviously 5,000 pictures, around 2,000 holders. And they were one of the first NFT products on Solana. They've got a very good standing in the community. So uh, that, that, that's what John was referring to with monkey DAO. So you know, you've gone through this January to March, you've seen Solana, you've seen it work, and we've seen NFTs come out. And then we go into peak NFT mania in the summer. And right. doesn't that start, you get thinking, you know, you're seeing the Ethereum sales, you said you saw the Beeple one. And now we're seeing the NFTs on Solana coming across with the Gen Apes, with a big, that was a big first one that was the catalyst, I'd say. And at that point, did you start looking to get into them due to just being, you know, an artist and appreciating the art? Or was it, for investment or was it just a mix of both uh it was it was purely for investment i believe but it was also to understand perspective because it was hard to get into it for the art especially on the solana space because not like what i had to do was i had to remove my critical art brain from investing into these projects because you know being an artist and being a professional artist you know i i've grown a very critical you you have an opinion yeah, I, I have a very strong opinion, right? So, exactly. so to invest, it was it was less about what was moving to me of what I normally looked for in art, and it was more important of why are others so moved by this this art? You know, why were they so moved by NFTs? So ob- objectively, and I say this with with all due respect, but I think this is a really important point because sometimes even when you look at the art, you know, within the modern NFT collection, the premium ones, the bored apes, they're nothing, you know. For someone to draw them, you're a comic animator and you've done a lot of work. And I've I've watched a lot of anime myself. It's nothing that's, you know, that makes you stop and say, oh my God, how did this person create this? But somehow they go for such high high values. And for me as well, at the start, this was a really hard learning curve. And I think the identification of how that NFT makes you feel and why you put such a value on it, I think that's the click at which point you can understand why a pixelated monkey could be worth so much but that's really hard to do and i think it's what you said diving head first and interacting with the nfts yourself is the only way to do that and you make mistakes on the way i think everyone's made mistakes on the way with nfts so <laughs> right right and and you know it's i i attribute a lot of my success for coming in in such a weird way um as an artist right i think a lot of people now are coming in strictly as an artist and they're like okay well this yeah. is a new avenue for me to distribute and find a collector base and all these things. And I think it's a, it was a blessing in disguise that I came in not really interested in how to put my own art because, you know, I had just broken into the comics. So I was so focused on comics, you know, so, so my time here was purely just like, okay, what do these people like, why are they voting with their dollars so hard? And, and what, what is it about it that is justifying these, these price points, you know? And um, I, I think it helped me because ultimately it makes me very empathetic towards what it feels like to be a collector in the space. Um, even though projects and one of one art deal with way different mechanics, I think a, there, there it's like a Venn diagram, and there there are a lot of things that overlap at that point. Of how does you know from from the the creator to audience relationship, how does innovation feel? How does lack of innovation feel? And I think it was important for me to understand that from a collector point of view so that I can, when I decide to run a business on here um, or a project or whatever, that I'm very empathetic to, towards those needs and yeah. these different levers that are pulled. 
So the first, the, the stinger question, the quick one is, and this comes to when you said about your introduction about you went Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana. As both an artist and a collector, having had the experience of both, would you have done the same thing you've done on Ethereum? And do you think you'd have seen the same success? Or if it was just Ethereum, do you think you'd have never gone down that route due to gas fees, etc.? Any any perspective on that before we dive into just the like the Solana approach? Because the ecosystems between Ethereum and Solana are different in terms of NFTs, and quite a bit so. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh I think you're right. I, I think uh, if I had I done Ethereum, I think what would the most likely scenario that would have happened was the with the nature of Ethereum being what four years in, I I would have been pretty overwhelmed from the competition because then at that point I'd be competing with my heroes, and um, not only that, but then you know it's high risk because then at that point the gas fees and you know the marketplace percentage fees, all these things um, accumulate towards a very difficult path, and um, I don't think I saw the same lane as um, I did for Solana. And I think, you know, but but then again, it's it's tough because I don't know how to articulate it exactly, but it's it wasn't like I came in and I, I saw like a lane and it was just one thing. It was it was like this accumulation of things, right? It was something I could afford. It was it was I saw an opportunity and then I saw a a community in which that they would back me at first and then I would be able to find my own audience from there. So it was just this really rapid accumulation of factors that happened that that I was very just excited for because because what I'm realizing now is what we're actually experiencing is somewhat of a internet gentrification where artists are moving over to this chain that is more affordable where you know if you mint something on ETH and it's like 150 to 300 dollars then what if the piece sells for 200 right so basically my my follow up question i think what, what yeah. the core cool point of what you're saying is that the fact that it was on solana and it was low cost to access made it much more easy for you to take that step and then i think the second point in general is it comes towards if you find a smaller community or you're earlier to something and this is what we say when we do research into projects and why we prefer new projects where you can be early and have an influence in the outcome and also build a relationship because it's a small community it's everyone knows each other and it's tight-knit yeah um, i think for anyone who's an aspiring artist i think that's the key piece of advice find if you know if you don't think that you can do it in solana or you think that's too late maybe it's on a different chain maybe it's on neo maybe it's on luna and there's a community there that you can interact with and build up a following but you need to be native to the community to be successful i think and i think that comes from your interaction with everything like you said, until the point when you went, right, I think I understand what both collectors want and both what the artists need. And well, Solana's cheap enough to let me do this. So, and before before we, we carry on, I know Stan's been buzzing to, to ask questions. So we yeah. let Stan jump in here. And then if you want to just, just a general one on both of them together. Yeah, yeah I actually want to talk about exact the same topic. I want to talk about like how was your artwork received on the Solana community and how did you manage to build like an audience around you? Because a lot of artists would love some advice on that, I think. And especially on Solana, I think it's also great to learn like how did the community get behind you? 
Yeah. And, and I think this, this kind of goes to the root of everything again, like of my life before NFTs. And I think what's funny, and I think it's relatable to a lot of people in the space is I feel that looking back, a lot of things prepped me for this moment, right. Of learning how to, because for years and years I I was, I was trying to sell my art and I, I failed and I succeeded, but most of the time I failed. Just to interrupt you there, sorry, like you said, sometimes you fail and succeed. Does, did it not ever make you, before you did the NFTs, where you'd have some art that you you know that hadn't sold, and you saw an NFT that sold, and you'd go, but mine, like, did you ever have that feeling where you'd have, like, someone with an NFT that you thought wasn't as quality, so to say, that would make you, give you a bit more motivation? Sure. And and this happened, I don't even think that issue is unique to NFTs, right? It's, it's yeah. you'll feel it on a convention floor with an artist alley where uh, an artist of a certain caliber will sell way more than you and have a busier table than you. And, and it's no, I don't think it's that much different in NFTs. But I think what, what I was kind of trying to get towards was, I think for, for the first 10 years of, of my career, what I focused on was craft, and rightfully so. I, I wanted to have the work that would speak for itself. However, with getting so obsessive with craft, the one thing I neglected to realize was how to market myself, how to sell myself, how to communicate to an investor that I am an investable asset. And it's something I failed at a lot, you know, because I was just worried about the drawing portion of of the business and not the actual sale. And I think that's, again, it's it's something that really clicked for me when I was, when I was, because, you know, from, from January till September, I was still having a very hard time understanding what a smart contract was, right? Or, or blockchain and all these things. And then once NFTs happened and you're starting to interact with a smart contract and the blockchain, then things really started to make sense because right before I got into NFTs, I was working on comics and there's a funny thing about what happens in art in the art world where most of the time people will buy your work and it's really just for this emotional fulfillment, right? And there was never a, you know, maybe not for me, maybe not at the levels that I was able to reach, but it was never an investable kind of thing where they could support me early and then later on they could make um, some good money. And and I think that's what really, really clicked for me was I, I started to understand that N- what NFTs are actually doing for artists it's completely redefining this relationship between the audience and the creator in which we could both, we can both, you know, climb together just from, and the, the pinnacle of it, the, the keystone of it is art. And I, I found that rather beautiful. And now being a couple months in, I kind of see it as, you know, it's the infrastructure that makes it easier to succeed here than outside in the fiat world as an artist. I think one of the most important things to remember here is that with NFTs, your reach with your audience is the whole internet. It's permissionless. So anyone can find you or look you up. While if you were selling, you know, physical comic book prints, you were confined mostly geographically. Yes, you could sell online via, you know, eBay, Amazon, Etsy, etc., and Web2 retailers, but they have, you know, they, they push location settings and people won't buy from overseas. While NFTs kind of, like the NFTs on there, the physical is not that important. The NFT kind of replaces that and opens up such a wider market base. And I'm sure you'll have seen that with collectors of your own artwork that, you know, if you found out from where they're from or their backgrounds, it's extremely diverse. And I'm 100% certain of that because that is crypto, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's interesting because, you know, although the perspectives and the backgrounds are so diverse, there's a, there's a lot of camaraderie 
right? Um, just being in such a niche space. I think um, I think that's why relationships are developed so quickly in the uh, the NFT space and in, in the crypto space. But one thing like that I wanted to touch on was like, yeah, that that community factor is so big in NFTs. And I think that's another thing that I started to understand with my time as collecting into various PFP projects was how much community mattered. And, you know, that reminded me a lot of my before comics, I, I was on Twitch a lot and I, stre- I live streamed uh, my art process and that was kind of my first introduction to understanding how important community was. And, you know, it was great that that was also very heavily reliant on Twitter and Discord. And so when I go to NFTs, it's funny that I'm using Discord and Twitter um, quite heavily again, just because this is the homes for those communities. So this then brings up two questions, I think, for me personally. The first one is, it's a common, I think from what you've said, it's a common misconception that for one of one artists, the community they have around them doesn't matter a lot of people think it's just about the art but i think what you've just said it like paints stark it's it's the complete antithesis of it. it's the complete opposite than what than what people expect so i think a community is really important yes and i think the the second thing that then comes up is from what you've said when you've kind of approached this towards your community using the same tools did you get any backlash from your existing or previous community i.e the non-NFT or the Web3 people who had misconceptions about NFT, oh, they're, high, they're harming the environment. You shouldn't be doing them. Did, did you have any of that? Or, yeah. you know, yeah. any other negativity that... Because we've talked about the positives and there's, sure. always, there's always something bad. So you have to touch on the bad too, you know? Sure. And, and that's, a, that's a very funny topic and uh, maybe not so funny because it's actually a very divisive topic. And uh, yes, uh, to answer your question, yes, I, I did deal with some backlash. But then there's also a reason that many people from my comics career have no idea that I'm doing this. Everything I've built um, in NFTs, the, the, the fan base, the community, the collectors, not a single person is from my my previous fan bases. I haven't been able to merge the fan bases. And, you know, there's good reason to that. And I understand. And these days, I understand that what we're asking for people to do is, is you know, it's quite a lot. You're asking, or actually asking the world to do, is to dig for information and not only stop there, but then find where they land in perspective. And in really what I'm saying is uh, create their own opinions on something based on information that they found themselves. And yeah. that's okay. <laughs> that's okay, right? That's, it's the that's... <laughs> it's a disinformation problem all over again. It's, it's the same with everything. It's COVID, NFTs, it's misconceptions, it's mass media, however you want to frame it. But sure, it's, it's what you said. I think it's a lack of people having their own opinions and just following. And I think that's yeah. changing as information becomes more accessible and it's conversations like these which open things up and let people understand more right and and i think that's what's very important about outlets like this of of you know this is you know really under the branch of journalism where you know if we can provide information that isn't so hard to find then we'll attract more people we'll educate more people and we will show that you know again just like everything in life making blanket statements is very hard and um, oftentimes impossible because not everything is binary. There's always nuance in everything, exactly. Yeah. So, and, and this then now, like my follow up question. So we we've so so far following your story, you know, you've gone through, you found Solana, you've gone into the NFTs, 
you've started off, you know, your own collection, but it's completely unrelated to your previous work. So it's like you're working with a brand new slate. You're on the internet, you're effectively anonymous at this point. So, and you've got your art coming up and you've got a small community around your friends and followers. How do you go about planning how you're going to launch your art and how do you balance your supply with your demand? Because obviously the reason I ask this question, as a listener, you simply go, oh, you just make the art as you go along. You know, if, if people want to buy it, you make more. If people want less, you don't. But as an artist, you need time to do that. You don't know if people are going to like the art or which pieces they like. It's a very nuanced topic. So I'd, I, I want to hear how you handled it and if, if it's been difficult or not. Yeah. So honestly, I, I don't think the creating of the art has been difficult because this is an advantage I have where a lot of the work I sold. So I, I have started uh, two collections. One is called the first collection. And there are going to be 26 tokens. We're, we're auctioning off the 26 token, the last one this weekend. And then the other collection is called Random Access Hard Drives. And this is just stuff that didn't quite make the cut for the first collection. And mainly I bring that up is to address the supply issue is, is how do you, how do you make the supply methodical and how do you, how do you, you know, tinker with these levers in order to make the supply make sense. And I think I have an advantage over many of the artists in, especially in the Solana space, because a lot of the work that I have sold is work that I did maybe four to five years ago. There's sure some of them have been reimagined or slightly altered or things like that, you know, to, to fit the framing of NFTs better. But then again, my, my biggest advantage is the work was done and I didn't have to worry about whether or not people were going to like it per se, because I, broke in the comics with that work. And I believe that breaking in the comics is much, much more difficult than breaking in the NFTs, at least at the current state right now, especially on Solana. And um, so I was able to have confidence in my work as I started releasing it. And, you know, I'm a very methodical person. So even when I put up my first auction and nobody really knew who I was, I had maybe 300 followers. But I knew a couple people. I knew them from the communities that I was spending time in um, for NFTs and PFPs. And so for me, a lot of things come down to storytelling with my love for comics. You know, I, I believe everything comes down to storytelling and narrative in one way or another. And I was okay with the narrative at the beginning of the first piece, the Genesis piece, the 000, selling for very low, which it sold for 2.8 soul, which isn't low by any means. I mean... I would be ecstatic if I was able to sell a, a painting or a drawing at $600. Um, and, and I don't mean that 2.8 is low at all. It's just uh, in relative to what we've accomplished since the 2.8 sale. It, it was I was okay with starting at that amount. And I really wanted the narrative to show through sales, just like a candle chart. I wanted to show us, you know, going upwards. And so that's that's how I really started to think about how many to release per week and how to kind of create this narrative through the sales. Because I think what's really important, so like if if my passion is in storytelling and now I'm I'm going into the space to, you know, now market my work and, and distribute my work, what I see the crypto spaces is, or especially NFTs, is it's this very interesting moment where there's a cross-section between finance and art. And I think with that, there, there's a lot of different mechanics at play here of how do you tell a story and how, especially how do you communicate to everyone that you're, you're exactly what I was saying earlier, investable, right? 
I think so. Touching back on that, mm-hmm. so from what you said regarding the market share, because you know that that was quite a hefty bit. The one thing I wanted to say is, uh, I think you'll enjoy the story. I have a test Stad knows this, and everyone, all my coworkers do, and it's called the girlfriend test, where I pick the NFT, whether it's a profile picture, one of one. Mm-hmm. I hide everything about it. And I show just a picture to my girlfriend. I ask her yes or no, and with with it, she doesn't <laughs> know the price or anything. And if she says yes, usually it's good. Like when I say usually. Sure. All the like good PFPs and the one of ones that I've been so far, like they work well because they've got that broad appeal. And she said yes to your work. And sadly, she didn't do it early enough for me, but <laughs> she did it. And I was, I was very happy like to, to see it, to see it evolve the way it has. So you had the confidence coming in and then you've come in with yeah. the ready artwork. And obviously you've been doing this for 10 years. So you've put in a lot of time. Sure. Um, do you think you there's any what happens when you face supply issues? When does the like if the stockpile runs out, does that lead to a hiatus, which you know could help demand? Have you thought about maybe factoring things like this? And you know, as you said, you're very in touch with these with well your collectors who are both collectors, appreciators, but also investors. Have they suggested anything to you for one of one artists to add more value to their NFTs? Because one thing I always say is physical copies are you know the uh, the the standard at this point with NFTs like high one of ones because the NFT is like a certificate. So and right. anything that you you have to share on that topic? Yeah, so I, I've gotten a lot of great advice. A lot of these people that are my collectors now and friends now they they have been business privy for a long time and you know, very privy in crypto and investments and all those things things that are very uh, foreign to me. And you know where we're at right now is. As far as my old work goes, the first collection is 26 works that I made four years ago, but I believe still they still hit hard today. And so that's oh, why I do. capped it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And, that, and that's why I capped it. At, um, I, I, you know, it's so many things because cosmetically, I feel like the, the ending at the number 25, but we have 26 tokens because of the zero, zero, zero. I feel like that it was a, it was a good number to end at. And then also the other framing of it is... I would be ending at auction 10. So it, you know what I mean like it was it was these round numbers that felt intentional that that you know it illustrated that well, okay it felt this guy, right. It felt right basically. Like you right. were comfortable with how it laid out and it felt, you know, I think most people have this it's when you like get to a certain point and you're like I feel happy with where I've come to this is this is where I've settled. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and that's also the why I opened up the random access hard drives collection where all those ex- with the exception of two being auctioned, all of those were just random drops that I I would I would post that I submitted a proposal, a proposal to exchange.art and then I dropped them randomly and people were just there ready, refreshing their pages to get it. And uh, the reason why I started the random one was because I, I wanted an area or a collection that I could release work that wasn't as methodically done as the first collection and and my other core collections that are to come. So I wanted a place where if I woke up one day and I had, you know, an itch to draw something, I was able to do that. And then I was able to just post it and, 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 you know, tokenize it or whatever. So I wanted an outlet for that, but then I also wanted an outlet where I could be very methodical and really think about what a core collection can do. And I just, you know, that was the solution that I came up with. Like, it's it's very interesting because none of, like, although I try, like, I, I feel like I'm a very thoughtful artist and a very thoughtful businessman, but 
it's not like I, I studied for two months, I collected bad PFPs for two months, and I, I wrote out this whole business plan of how it was going to go. It was, I tried one thing one week, I took notes, I took notes of what happened, and then the next week I would take more notes. And then I would keep tinkering with these levers to understand like, what did this do? And did this do anything? And, you know, that brought so much information to my head of like, you know, does my supply depend on unique bidders? Does it depend on social media interaction? Like all these things were things I was actively taking notes on. And I think what helps me is with the success I've had, what I've been doing um, because I don't have to draw more work because I was going through an old backlog of work. I've been able to put a lot of my energy towards onboarding people. And while onboarding them, it was helping me answer other questions that was for them, but it also applied back to me, you know, because they would ask like, oh, well, should I release three this week? Should I release two? Should I release one? And I, you know, th there was a certain moment, I forget what auction it was. It was maybe three or four that I was like, you know, maybe there's this information here of like the amount of unique bidders actually implies how much supply you should trickle out. And so, so it was kind of like, I don't know if I'm articulating this well, but it was kind of like every week I was staying as nimble as possible so that I can adapt to every hurdle that would come. I understand completely. I know Stan's itching for a question, so I'm going to let him dive Please. in first, and then I'll be following up. Yeah, I had two questions, actually. The first one is more about the people who collect your artwork, because obviously we have seen very large communities behind these profile picture projects. And a lot of my friends who are in NFTs are maybe biased because they find it hard to collect one-of-ones, mainly because they're not that, like they're not professional in collecting. They just collect what they like or where they see a trend and they find it harder with one-of-one -one artwork. What kind of people are collecting one-of-ones? And do you think there should be like more people diving into it, moving from profile pictures? Because a lot of the supply and like the demand is still these profile pictures. Well, I think the one-on-one space is still a bit underrated, I guess. Obviously, there are huge artists, but I still feel it's, you know, a smaller section, I guess. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I, I think so, specifically on Solana, we're at less than half a percent for one-on-one um, market share. And I totally get it. And, but it's funny what you say, because, you know, it's, it's easier for people at the moment, it's easier for people to get into PFPs because of why there's a mechanic in which these PFPs are a way for us to self-express, right? Like when you buy a shirt or a car or whatever, um, it's, a, it's a form of self-expression. And so one of one, I don't think is any different. I think this is just the ethos of what people learned art to be. And I, I blame very pretentious art people for creating the stigma, <laughs> but they feel uneducated and, and unworthy of, of collecting art because they don't understand art. But what else is art than going to a movie theater and forming an opinion? I like that movie or I did not like that movie. It's not much different. You know what I mean? So, and, and I don't think it's much different than do I like this PFP or do I not? The reason, um, let's get to, you asked like what kind of people are collecting it. I think they're forward thinkers. I think they're people that understand that eventually, how many PFPs can you really hold? And how many of them can you really display at one time? It's like each of our profiles is a single car garage and you can only display one at a time. But I think what, what, what becomes really interesting is I saw a tweet the other day where it was discussing how, you know, you buy an average art PFP. And when the market is up, it's a beautiful PFP. 
And when the market is down, <laughs> it's a very average PFP. Well, here's the thing. Nothing that I will ever touch will be average. And it will la- if it can last four years or five years, then maybe it can last a decade or two decades or 50 years, 100 years. But I don't think that the quality, the quality of my art will change based on the market. It will be my art regardless. I think that this is really important to mention here that one of ones, so traditional art, you know, I love how you brought that up, but think about traditional art. There are so many masterpieces that are hidden away because some rich person has decided this is mine, I'm going to lock it away and no one can see it. But with one of ones, what happens is that you you can display it while also owning it securely. So if I have a one of one from yourself, that's an original one, it doesn't have to be locked away in a vault because it's worth 4.6 million in three years from now. It right. can be displayed and everyone can enjoy seeing it, except, uh, well, they all know that, you know, that person owns it, but everyone can see it and it can be shared with everyone. It can be displayed in museums and so forth. And that's what NFTs enable. And it's a matter of time until even the rich people have this traditional art, realize that it's no fun if I can't actually show it off that I have it and no one else can like see it. So I think yeah. that's, that's a really important point there. I think uh, I gained this very interesting perspective from one of the people that onboarded me a couple of months ago on this. And um, it's not exactly related, but I believe it is related where he was at my, so my girlfriend is also in the space. Her handle is at Visible Jamie. And she had an art show in LA a couple months ago. And one of the friends that we had that onboarded us on Solana, he really wanted to buy this piece. And for whatever reason that night, he didn't buy it. And we, you know, we're used to that. We're used to nobody buying our work, right? And so not until a couple months later, he buys one of her NFTs. And he opened up to us that, you know, that night when he was at the art show, he was ready to buy it. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a financial issue. It was more of an issue of, okay, if I buy this, how do I take care of it? How do I make sure, because it's such a tangible object, how do I make sure that I keep it out of the sunlight? And how do I frame it properly? How do I keep it clean? How do I take care of it when I move house to house to house? And when it came to the NFT, all of that responsibility, anxiety, right, all of that responsibility anxiety went out the window because he was like, well, I know how to take care of this. I know <laughs> how to show this off. You know what I mean? So, so none of those factors played into it, which... And- right like resulted in a non-sale it's not just that it's also the fact that you like buying it with sd nft is so much easier than any unless like you literally had the painting in your hands and he had cash in hand and he just switched it but like that is a that's not happening at art shows no one's showing up with wads of cash and buying these things to go away and there's time for them to lose the interest with nfts you click buy, it's done. That's it on Solana. You don't even have to pay gas fees. It's beautiful. Exactly. So, <laughs> exactly. I think maybe maybe you should talk to your friend who onboarded you and get the next collection in LA to come with a you know QR code with a listing for each piece, so you can buy it. You can buy the NFT of it immediately. And sure, maybe sure. the maybe the physical is opt in, opt out. You can pick it up if you want. You can't if you don't, or it'll be stored for you. People would All be right. interested in that, like a vault service. Well, that that's a separate topic. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's uh, that that brings an interesting uh, thing as well, where it's like, you know, what what I've been noticing is say, say you have a lot of work that, you know, the originals haven't sold. That's not necessarily my case. Most of my originals have sold already. But for, for if I had this, this stockpile of originals, it's interesting because I think 
the the price discovery model of it in NFTs also plays, you know, it kind of plays into it now of of what your worth is on on your originals. And, and something I never considered before I actually started doing it, because my collectors, the ones that got really curious, they found my art dealer that sells my originals. And they were so baffled by how relatively the, cheap they were compared to what the my price discrepancy. Was. Yeah, the yeah. arbitrage. Yeah, it's very it's it's a, another very interesting thing. I think that's why I'm so bad at articulating everything during this conversation because the questions are all so good, but it's me realizing that, you know, I didn't realize how fast lane living I I've been for the past 3 months where it's just like just kind of thinking on my feet and staying light and staying nimble and and just trying to figure it out every step of the way. And and now that it's coming to a close, it's like, yes, I do have this perspective that is a bit wiser of it, but now kind of going like tapping back into memories to answer these questions. It's like I'm realizing how much was I just really winging it. You know what I mean? I, I, I didn't have this master plan. I just kind of really just try to adapt every every corner of the way. I think you're being a little bit of fair to yourself with winging because I was going to touch back on like the supply and demand thing. And sure. just like, because I found that really interesting. I think it's a, what like what you've done is basically a quant analysis or like reinforcement learning. So as you've gone from week to week, you've taken the new information and that's for anyone who does probabilities, that's Bayes. So like as you get new information, you adjust your approach and that unique bidder thing, if you think of it from psychology, each yeah. unique bidder is having to come in and bid a higher amount well, that shows that they're committed to buying the work and they want to buy it. So they're likely right. to be recurring for the next auction again and again. So I think you're more interested in how many unique bidders you can have more than you are in your in the price. Because the more unique bidders with a tick size, you know, each time a unique bidder adds, the tick size goes up a bit. So it's sure. always going to be an incremental thing. So right. did you find like a, a golden ratio between like unique bidders and supply in an auction? So, you know, if you had 10 unique bidders, Maybe I've got three pieces for this week. And if I have 20, maybe I go to like five or six pieces. It's right. like, have you ever thought of it that way? Or have you gone the other way where it's, if they're going up, maybe I should take the supply down. Has that ever been a thought? So, so yeah, it's definitely been a thought. But I think he here's how it happened for me was, I hope I can remember these numbers right. But there was a moment where we were getting maybe... I think the total sales um, were, were maybe, I think we, we were close to the 50s and then we went to the 70s and then we went to the low hundreds. And then one week we had this big pop. But before that big pop, what I was trying to do was if I say I wanted to break the number 120 and because that was the previous auction lot and it sold three pieces then or two pieces or whatever it was, then I would think that, okay, well, yes, I could, I could constrict the supply at this point and just have one, but I felt to get weekly totals that were higher to express that narrative. Because if you start looking at my, how I compose my Twitter, I'm very methodical about how I compose my Twitter and, and the information I give as, as well as the structure in which I feed that information. Because every week I'm trying to create this narrative that we are generally going up on a chart. But if I had seen that, okay, we got to 70 on two pieces and I wanted to break 100 the next week, I could constrict the supply to one and hope that I break 100 on this one piece or I add a third. So now there is less pressure on each one for me to accumulatively hit over 100. And once we got over yeah. that barrier of 100, I was like, okay, well, if I do three more, then, then we, can, we can hit again, right? 
so it, yeah, that that was all very much in my thought process of how I do this because I wanted to like I think what I like vividly remember is like for what I forget what the previous week was um, like the totals, but I wanted to break one twenty for whatever reason, and and I thought then that you know if I have three pieces that I think there is an obvious you know there's an obvious uh, marquee piece and then there's two pieces that are kind of mid tier then it alleviates pressure on all of them and together three pieces could reach 120. And so I kept doing that. And, and I think, but now what you're saying about like, did, did I ever think about constricting supply? Now I'm starting to really consider that. I think before I would, I would rely on just tweeting that, oh yes, we have this many left and, and this is when it ends. But I think I was being too subtle. And I think the reason I'm being too subtle is because all these years that I focused on craft, I think craft is about subtlety, subtle genius. I don't think business necessarily is that much about subtlety. I think it's about clarity. I and, think the yeah. subtleties have been picked up by the people who have brought the prices to where they are because they can read through the subtleties and see the implications right. of the supply squeeze. I think from what you've said so far, the big takeaways I would have is that if I was an artist, I would approach it doing small lots weekly i would start with a very small initial price point and let the market bid it up itself and i would try to build week over week gradually while keeping the quality there and that requires either building up a backlog or having one in existence and it to be of a high quality work and yeah. then down the line that brings us to these discussions where you're looking at total supply and most importantly do you think that total supply has benefited to bring to bring these people in and helping the prices grow or do you think that if you've just kept it you know in the air about what's happening with the supply that would have had a negative effect because that supply is something i always keep in my mind with nfts yeah for me it's you know every week i was like you know i didn't people would ask like what, what was the ending supply and i would be like oh it's going to be around 21 to 23 and then i would dig through my computer and i was like oh well this drawing is actually pretty good so then the next week it would be like no, okay it's closer to 24 and then I would never put an actual number on it until I got to this point. And I, I think just to go back to like the subtleties of it, like I think marketing it two weeks ago or a week ago, I made a it's just a graphic that kind of showed all the pieces that have sold and I grayed out the ones that have sold. And then I left full display of the ones that are still to go. And I think it really worked. Um, I don't know how much it's, it's my speculation that it worked, but I think it really did work because what I wanted to do was visually communicate that the door for being in the first collection was closing. You know, yeah. but you know, it, it wasn't like, you know, because you asked that question, it does bring me back to when I was deciding how many to have up per week, um, which works to do, because it, it would be very easy to put all your best work first because you're nervous of how it's going to do. But then you also want to crescendo up to a higher accumulative total between the lot. Right. So it was always kind of like going back and forth of these things, but always um, like I think a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was trying to decide which, like, you know, what was going to be the last three or whatever. And my girlfriend brought up a great point that, you know, I think one of the most important things about your work is like the people that are floating, like the loneliness that it ensues and, and this feeling from, from you know, this surreal and science fiction feeling that comes from these pieces that are a bit fantastical of these human figures, these characters floating. And so she had suggested that, you know, I think you should have a floater each week. And that was, that was like another angle that I never even like really considered, but you know, it's something that I kind of just stuck to. And I, I think in the end, you know, there, there, there were 
a lot of lessons to be learned there, you know. But going, you asked another question about, you know, about the constricting supply and for like new artists. A big part of me, because I knew that I was introducing people, I was introducing myself to a new space with old work. So realistically, I'm introducing them to my level of work four years ago, not who I've become in four years. So although, sure, there might have been a couple better ways to play it of constricting the first collection down to 10 to drive up value quicker, but I also, it's it's hard to know if that would have worked because how much do you need in that first collection to really establish your presence in the space? I think now that I'm looking back, 26 tokens is pretty good for me, right? Like I feel like I've established a brand. I think I've established uh, myself as an artist in the space, but I also wanted to get all of the old work out. Like literally after this Sunday, I'm out of backlog work and I'm very excited about that because I think the next time I come back, which may be in a month or two months or however long, it's going to be nothing but new work. So I think what, like for me, again, to go back to narrative, I spent the first three months of my time in NFTs introducing people to my body of work that exists so far. And when I come back, I'll be introducing who I am today. And And there's something about that narrative structure that really it hits with me because I feel like if I came in as a young artist and I was seeing somebody do this exact same model, that would move me as an artist. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I know Stan's, Stan's been sitting on his hands. He's asking yeah. for a question. So Stan, go for it. Yeah, I actually <laughs> want to talk about the price point because that's a very interesting thing you brought up as well. Like uh, you said, like start off cheap. And I think that's important because you don't want your early collectors to have the feeling they are maybe taking a huge risk betting on a new artist. Or am I saying it wrong? Because you're new to the space. And obviously when you start off cheap, there's a bigger opportunity for collectors to bet early on you. While if you would say, oh, I feel like I'm on this level, I'll start at 50 soul you immediately price out a lot of people, I guess. Yeah, I honestly, I see people do that. And honestly, the the model I follow, um, for anybody that doesn't know, but it's a project called Boogle. And it's a, hmm. um, it's a supply of 100, one of one PFP NFTs, which is a mouthful. But um, what they've done is is quite astonishing. You know, the last the last auction broke three thousand soul, I believe, um, in accumulative um, totals for three pieces, and it's it's remarkable what they've been able to do. And I think a backbone of that is the exclusive community that they've built. But something I do is I follow that model, and only now that they're in the last ten of a hundred, and they're they're arguably one of the most successful projects on Solana. Only now. Do they put their prices at 10 soul to just to start the conversation? I think that I've seen people do 50 soul to start, 70 soul to start. And in my mind, I'm like, if you wanted to do that, then why not just list it? Why even go through auctions? Because then I think you're neglecting the tool and the mechanics of price discovery that an auction provides. Right. My first auction, I started at 0.25 soul and I put the tick size, the, the incremental tick size at, I, I believe it was 0.1. And then the next one, because that one did rather well, I was like, okay, I'm going to release two. So then the tick, the, the starting price was 0.5 soul and the tick size was 0.5. So I wanted to start to welcome in whole numbers. And only now when we're almost done, that I have been making it one sole starting price and one sole tick size. 
I'm unsure of what I'm going to do this weekend. And that's exactly how close to the line that I'm playing this is I just kind of chew on this stuff of like, okay, well, do I start the conversation at five? Do I start, do I keep it at one so that more people can get involved? I'm not really sure. I I think for me, it comes down to narrative again. I want people to show up at the auction page on Saturday and I don't know how exactly yet. And I believe it's going to be interesting because this comes out Saturday, right? Um, So I I think, first of all, I think the most important lesson to take from what you've said is humility and how you approach this starting off. I think think that covers everything in terms of approach for artists. I mean, they can listen to the previous part, get the in-depth, you know, batches and increase. But long story short, it's humility. Regarding Mm. your dilemma about how do you get people to show up, um, I know Metaplex has a option to give a participation NFT to anyone who participates in the au- in the auction. So that sure. might be a that might be an option. I, I don't know if it's feasible to turn it around so quickly, but I'm sure the people at Metaplex and Holoplex are good. The one question which I have to ask is: as an artist, how was the onboarding experience to Exchange Art and Holoplex? Did you find it smooth? Is there anything you would change? Has it improved? And as you said, you've onboarded people. How have those people found it? I will say that it is uh, good enough for now, but it is far from perfect. It's these onboarding calls that I do with people. Um, a lot of people ask me, do I send them links and resources? And, and the answer is no. I do a two to three hour call with each artist I onboard. And I do this multiple times a week where I walk them through every single step. I walk them through the mechanics of how to play Twitter, what spaces to join into, what communities that provide a window to share your work so that you can do it eloquently. So I'm every time I onboard an artist, it's, it's a very tailored kind of thing. Um, I believe using Olaplex is, is very confusing. I was very confused my first time. I think I almost blew a fuse the first time because, you know, I'm getting told that, oh, if you mint your work on Solana, it's so cheap. I think I spent like $40 trying to mint when it should only be a dollar. Um, and there were, there were bugs and there were all these things that, you know, attributed to it. And I, I just, the user experience and the creator experience, I think there's, there's a lot that's going to be improved. And, and, you know, it sounds like I'm, you know, kind of talking poorly of how the system is right now. I, I think it's good. I think what I'm really saying is because things are leaving, like, you know, the current marketplaces leave a lot to be desired, shows how wide open the lanes are, not just from an artist point of view, but just from a builder point of view. I think even, you know, these podcasts are very instrumental towards the future we're building because we need to be able to document the history that's happening. So back to your question of like, what is the onboarding experience? Like, it's very difficult. You know, it's very difficult to get people on board and get people to understand what it is they're saying, because I think a lot of us come from this Web2 world when it says, when the webpage says transaction complete, you have faith and trust that the transaction is complete. And in Web3 currently, especially on Solana, that's not always the case. You really have to look through, right? You really have to see, okay, does this load in Explorer? Does it load in SoulScan? Does it load in my wallet? You know, did it take the transaction feed? Did did it actually list? Like there's so many different factors of like, um, that make it very difficult to onboard people. Cause I can't just say like, oh, do this, do that. And the other, I have to physically sit there with them and watch it. So I make sure that they don't do the same mistakes that I did. Yeah. I, I I always get this from my parents and my friends because for me things are just so simple. I think everything's like because I'm so familiar with it, but to someone yeah. who's new, it's a bit overwhelming. So I completely understand that, and I know the teams at Holoplex and Metabooks are working hard at it, and mm-hmm. it's it's good that we have what we have at the current moment. And 
this then brings me to just to the general NFT ecosystem and whole seeing as you're in the space and you're a wonderful one artist. The two key questions, which I know a lot of our, I'll just wait for that. Don't worry. Sorry about that. I live in an hour. Don't, don't <laughs> apologize, man. It happens. So the, the two key questions that then bring me up, which I know both a lot of our listeners are going to be asking about is firstly, what mm-hmm. do you think about derivative projects when a collection takes an existing one and just modifies the artwork slightly? And it's very similar, or it could be like a copycat project. And secondly, how have you found the like the PFP space in terms of like saturation? Are there any projects that have stood out to you just in terms of artwork or that you've been impressed with? Yeah. So the first thing about derivatives, I, I think, again, not a unique issue to crypto. This happens on the convention floor at comic conventions as well. You know, you can either have an artist that presents work that doesn't, you know, tie itself to any IP like Batman or Superman or Spider-Man. And then you have the artists that are, you know, stubborn and, and, you know, uh, like myself where I, you know, I, I don't really like doing derivative stuff. Um, I like developing my own IP. I like developing my own style. And my reasonings for that are, you know, I want my work as, as silly and romantic and, um, you know, unlikely as it is, I want to make my work last hundreds of years. I really do. And I think the only way I make my work last hundreds of years is if I pull from myself and not from others of what I want to do. Of course, I mean, that doesn't, when I say that, it sounds like I would say don't pull inspiration, definitely pull inspiration. But, you know, I I just didn't want to ever be known as, oh, that's the guy that draws Spider-Man really well, or that's the guy that draws Batman really well. No, I wanted to be known as me. I didn't want to piggyback off of an IP to either cut lanes or you know or cut corners or you know cheat cheat any part of the system. It, it just wasn't really interesting to me. I, my best work didn't come out of doing that, and it just never really interested me. So, what's happening in the oversaturation of derivatives on NFTs is it's the same thing. And you have people that, you know, they want to piggyback off of existing IP and existing fan bases to cut a corner. And sure, in the short term, it might seem like a good decision. But in the perspective of wanting to last hundreds of years, I don't think it works. Yeah, you know, say it's a bad decision. I always say, and this is why I don't understand, why would you buy a derivative that's so close to something? It's expressing the fact that you missed it. It's it's all the wrong things. It's like buying a fake watch where you're not really buying it for any other reason. I, I just it just baffles me why people would. I understand if you buy something that's completely new and unproven and it goes wrong. I understand that. But buying a copycat is like expressing the fact that, oh, I like this, but I just can't afford it, which is fine. You a lot of people can't afford a lot of things, and a lot of things are ridiculously expensive. Like board apes being the prices they are are. It's not insanity, but you know, it's worth a lot of money to a lot of people, and it's out of reach for a lot of people. So it's just the way it is. It's it's fine. So that that's what baffles me with derivatives. But what I want to talk about is a positive thing. So are there any projects that you've seen that have impressed you, or that you really like the artwork? Um, let's see. Uh, I, I think Mindfolk looks great. I think SMB. Um, I just bought my first SMB the other evening, and uh, I. I think what like again it's I I don't know if it's art for me it's for me you know like I had a very big thrill hitting approved transaction on the SMB it was the most money I've ever spent 
and I were on one thing and I, you know, it was a thrill. And, and the next morning I had zero buyer's remorse. And I think I was just so excited to be part of history because I think like, I think back to a year, like, this is why I bought the SMB a year ago. I, sorry, if this is a tangent too, but a year ago, I'm in a discord call with my friends trying to explain to me what blockchain is, what uh, Satoshi Nakamoto is and what Solana is. And they, they fill my wallet with a little bit of Solana and fast forward a year later, and I'm able to buy an SMB with my own money. And I think it just completed the narrative. I'm so obsessed with narrative. And I think like, you know, what I view these NFTs as, whether it's a Board API club or um, a CryptoPunk or an SMB, from my perspective of this is the value is really, these are fossils of the internet. They're fossils of Web3. And they are, they are these mementos that will remind me of where we were exactly on this day. And I think that's where it's important to me. And it's a little different than than how I view art. You know what I mean? But yeah, I don't I don't know. And, and, and there's just something I want to touch on on the derivative thing that baffles you about how like how can they do this and how can they do that? This is something like sorry if I'm getting too romantic here um, about art, but this this is something that art helped me realize. And in the path of making art or business or whatever it is, it is so easy for us to want to emulate somebody else rather than discover who we are. And I think I really have spent a lot of time discovering why that is in my craft because I think that the world is very scared of allowing people to aspire to be themselves. You know what I mean? Like making art is hard. And if you keep drawing your way and it's not getting love, but then you draw Spider-Man and gets all the love, then why would you ever draw your way again? And I'm just one of the idiots that just never ate into that. I never, I never really subscribed to that ideology. I just thought that, you know, if I get good enough, then, then people will see. People will recognize it just as good as a Spider-Man or, or anything like that. Yeah, I think this is not only a thing with art, like we're seeing it with music too, right? And with a lot of these forms of art where people think, oh, there's a trend, I will make this type of music. But you also have people who do completely something else because they just love making that kind of song. Right. And, and, you know, I think as an art, like that's where I'm lucky, right? If we, if we connect all these dots back to the life I've lived, and the success, the success I'm able to find now, it's just because I, I was very stubborn towards that idea where I, I didn't want to draw because just because I could. I wanted to draw because I wanted to be the very best at it. And of course, maybe that's not realistic, but at least that's what I'm striving for. And I wanted to do it with my own ideas. And I, I just didn't feel, I felt that if you kept chasing trends and trying to apply this trend to you and apply this trend to you rather than just being yourself, which I think is truly one of the hardest things to do. I think when you be like, you know, here's the thing in art or music or whatever it is, filmmaking, we are in the business of self-expression and visual communication, especially for art. So then how well can you self-express and visually communicate if you have a low level of self-awareness? So I think that people chase this quick money of of a derivative, of fan art, and things like this, and they think it's going to bring them to Valhalla. But truly, for me, Valhalla comes when you find yourself, and then you apply that to your craft. I was writing a article recently covering the last year, 2021, and it touches back on what you said, that you need to find things that are trend-resistant and have their own identity. And in that, 
well in the article why I outline is that there are different paths to the mountaintop. So there are different avenues to success. And if one way doesn't work, there is another way that will work. And you see that every day in life. You can see that, you know, as you said, you worked at something for multiple years, you broke into the comic book business, and then suddenly you break into the NFT space as well. So things don't happen, you know, one after the other in a linear fashion. They happen in but in clumps. And um you just you need to be transparent. It's, you can't get lost in what you said with the derivatives, that they're very right. short term. You need to find things that are trend resistant. That that's at least that's how I interpret what you're saying. And it might be why, you know, we see and recently why well, I think we've seen that use of NFTs with utility, because they would be theoretically trend resistant. If it's right. got a game tied to it, that game's not going to be a trend based thing. It's going to be people are going to play it for the game. And same thing with art, as you said, when people buy it, they buy it for the continued appreciation. Like just a an example, I've got a canvas of an Ali, which like Muhammad Ali, who someone drew for me, that's an NFT. And, you know, I've got the NFT and the original and I have that and I see it every day when I go to work, like when I sit at the desk and it really helps improve my mood. And I never understood art before that. And I think NFTs let me experience that because if I buy a print, Again, sorry, this is a tangent, but I've just realized it looking at it. But if I buy a print from a shop, I know it's not really mine. It's a print. It's a copy. It's what you said. It's like, you know, you're drawing Spider-Man again. So I never understood and I never had artwork in my house before NFTs. But after NFTs, that gives you that sense of ownership and you know it's yours. It, I think it's completely different. And I think that, that that's it's a subtle psychological thing, but I think that's the key difference. That trend-resistant thing that you said and being you know, being able to identify that. I think that's the biggest takeaway from you. Yeah. You know, for me, it's like, here's the thing, like all these years of choosing craft over money for better or for worse, you know, it's forced me to learn that if, if I wanted to do exactly that, create work that can stand the test of time. And like you're saying, be trend resistant for me, the only way that I saw it and I feel lucky to have seen it this way was the only way to do it was be me. Be the best me I can be. I feel like when you study the greats, all they did well, besides what they were good at as their craft, like let's just just make that the common denominator. But outside of being great at their craft, what they were really, really good at was unapologetically being themselves. And that resonates with me. And and so so when I think about the films I like, the the musical I, I like, it's I'm a very, very critical person. So when I start to make these lists of my favorite artists, my favorite musicians, my favorite filmmakers, my favorite people. They're all people that encourage me to continue to be myself. And I think that is the hardest thing to do in the human journey, especially in the day and age that we live in. Uh, We started from art and we ended up on philosophy. And (laughs) I think, think, John, that brings us to an end on this podcast. I think we've, we've come the full circle and come back to the start. Again, again, <laughs> philosophical. So, thank you again for coming on. It was a delightful conversation. It cleared up a lot of things for me, and I got a viewpoint from the artist. And I'm sure a lot of artists in our community will be looking forward to it. There's a link for the auction in down below the podcast. So, if you've got time this weekend, please come and check out, participate in the auction if you so wish, and have a look at the art. John, thank you again for coming on. One last thing: Where can people find you? Do you have a Discord? Uh, obviously, you have a Twitter account, so I'll make sure to link that down below. But what's the best way to get in touch with your art? 
Yeah, I think that's probably the best way. Is is uh, my my crypto Twitter is at not John Lay Studio. My real Twitter is not that far from it. It's just at John Lay Studio, <laughs> and uh, I guess those are the two natural hubs for me. That um, you can find my Discord there. You can find my Olaplex page there. My secondary market listings. My website. Pretty much all of those are there. And um, and yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I really appreciate you being here. It's always important to also talk to artists and builders because you know we often talk to investors but i think it's very important to have this perspective as well yeah thank you so much guys uh thank you so much for having me seriously